Hello listeners, a friendly reminder that the companies and topics discussed on this podcast are general advice only. Please consult an advisor or accountant for any personal advice. It has been a minute, hasn't it? It's actually been about a fortnight. So yes, I stand here accepting that there was no Market Pulse podcast last week. I actually went away for the weekend last weekend and I probably should have remembered that in hindsight and then also told you guys it was likely going to be a gap in the episodes. But alas, I did not and here we are. The silver lining though to that is having a week off means there's plenty to talk about and that is certainly the case with this episode. We're going to jump around to a fair few different topics a fair bit of macro to jump into, which is nice. It's nice, at least for me. I hope it's nice for you guys. I enjoy this stuff. We'll touch on GDP. We'll talk about the we'll talk about the shaky market over the past week. I say shaky, but I mean, I'm a long-term investor, so I don't really care, to be honest, if it's been shaky over the last week or so. However, it's certainly been notable, especially in sectors like technology and healthcare. So we'll touch on that. We will touch on a little bit of US politics regarding the $1.9 trillion stimulus bill that is now being, literally as we speak, debated in the Senate, or literally as I record this. And also, we'll touch on some ASX stuff. But as always, if you do want to help the show, throw us a star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, My name is Dion, and you are listening to episode 48 of the Market Pulse podcast, the Coming Back Edition. Yes, uh, echoing the the words there of Treasurer Josh Frydenberg earlier in the week when he fronted the media to talk about GDP figures for the December quarter, which we'll touch on shortly. But first, I'm going to go over how the markets went for the week that was, as we always do. So the ASX 200 was up slightly, up 0.6%, just over half a percent. The S&P 500, not too much better over in the US. It was up 0.8%. It had a little bit of a better day on Friday or last night for our time here in Australia. And the NASDAQ was worse. It was a touch over, it was around 2%. It was down for the whole week. So, and again, we'll, again, we'll touch on why that, why the NASDAQ did that and the S&P 500 was slightly up, up. And a lot of that has to do with those technology stocks that we talk about. A bit of an average kind of couple weeks for our market. Uh, The overall index, like I said, yes, it was up 0.6% this week, but it was down, I think it was down like 1.8% last week when I missed out on doing an episode. There's probably a few points to talk about why the market has been a little bit iffy as of late. And part of that story is around bond yields ticking up, which I think is worth exploring. But I also want to touch on a few other things, as I noted like we'll talk about GDP. It was sort of the tail end of the interim reporting season, which we were more or less stuck to reporting season over the past few episodes. So I'll clean up a few more stuff to do with that. So between the last episode and now, the ASX reporting season finished up and there was a few more interesting releases. On the same day, about a week or so ago, Afterpay and Zip reported Again, both showing great customer and transaction growth across the board. But of course, the other important factor is both of them also in, uh, reporting increased losses for both the companies. As So neither of those buy now, pay later, uh, popular buy now, pay later stocks are profitable businesses, at least at this stage. <laughs> uh, full disclosure, I do own shares in Zip, so it's not a recommendation, but the buy now, buy now pay later sector I mean, not just the buy now, pay later, but really the broader tech sector, both here in Australia and in the US has come off a little bit over the last couple of weeks. And like I said, at the top, you might've heard this chatter about bond yields spooking the market. So we'll get to that later on. The other thing I sort of watched for, or I looked at in the sort of end of the interim reporting season was travel related stocks, which is interesting. The likes of Flight Center and Webjet recorded, of course, both those businesses absolutely hammered during 2020 uh, due to lockdowns and pandemic and no, lack of travel. Flight Center are a little bit different in that they actually have, or well, they have quite a big footprint 
of physical brick and mortar locations and a lot of that had been they've closed many stores as well to cut down on costs a very difficult period for travel still across the board and not just flight center webjet actually on that note because i did it for zip2 full disclosure i have a position in webjet as well but also staying on the travel theme but sydney airport which is listed on the asx under syd now again not very surprising at all any of this stuff but just to put some actual tangible figures on it so when sydney airport reported their results their interim results they they talked about the number they always talk about the number of travelers that pass through their airport i think they report that monthly but so in january they that was domestic travelers were down 91 percent if you compare it to january 2020 so before the pandemic really truly hit us, international is down 98%. That's less surprising because there's really no international travel. It's just people returning from overseas. Um, but yeah, so the the domestic travel still down heavily. So down 91% in January 2021 compared to 2020. Another one that got hit last year, although it started out to be okay for them, I guess in terms of like a panic buying point of view, but A2 Milk, and we've talked about the impact that the pandemic had to the Daigo trade for them and probably more recently, at least over the last six months, broader trade tensions between China and Australia certainly probably sours sentiment on a stock like this. Uh, from a just purely share price reflection, it's been a really rough time for A2 Milk in the last six months especially. Remembering this is like, I mean, A2 Milk was at one stage going back a few years ago, the most popular, one of the most talked about stocks on the market completely. Like 2017 era A2M was, it was, those big things were happening. Um, people were talking about how many times over their share price had, had gone up from when they bought it. But it's now sitting back at about $9.31. And I guess what I've been listening to and reading a lot of discussion on at this point is, okay, well, what's, what is a good time to make a value play to jump into A2 Milk? So yes, the business has been battered and yes, that's been reflected in the share price, but at what point does it start to actually look attractive as a rebound play? Because you know, if your horizon is more than the next few months, if it's several years away, five plus years, for example, then it may be the, maybe it is starting to enter into that point. Uh, if you're hoping for an answer, for me to give you an answer on that, I don't have an answer because... I don't know what I think. I mean, in fact, the China issue worries me, broadly speaking, not just with A2 Milk, but just their ability to shake up the flow of things at just any point in time and intervene in private industry on behalf of their domestic markets. That concerns me. But also the that Diago trade that A2 Milk has benefited from for so long, it can't be recovering anytime soon. So sure, the vaccine gives us some hope. And that is certainly a positive to look at as it rolls out globally. But the return of full normal international travel is still a little bit off because we don't know. We don't even know whether when we start to open up to more countries, whether we open up to all of them, how we go about that. What if there's because the worry with it and the worry with vaccines is what about variants that pop up in particular parts of the world? That, that might require those vaccines to change to factor in those variants. I know I think I think it was the Pfizer vaccine said that they think they can turn around in 60 days. So if there's a, a variant pops up in a part of the world that proves that it can skirt around the Pfizer vaccine, Pfizer can respond within a 60-day period, i.e. update their vaccines to take that into account, which is incredible on a separate note. Now, the other thing that occurred towards the end of interim reporting season was and for many of them this was their first time doing this but we saw a bunch of the asx newbies give out results so these are companies that haven't actually been on the stock exchange for very long a lot of them are listed in the last six months a couple examples dusk group is one as in dusk the the candle stores i think they do more than candles but you know the, the candle store um, booktopia which is the online book retailer uh, Universal Store, which is a clothing group. Uh, Foods as well, which you might be familiar with. their sort of ready-to-go meals in supermarkets and service stations. They're all pretty new to the market. And 
like I said, many reporting results for the first time. Dusk was an interesting one. They had a they had a really good year. Everyone got their candle on, and the company actually lifted their net profit by 160%. So huge numbers for them. Actually, I think I was when I was reading about it because they touched on the whole JobKeeper or returning JobKeeper stuff. And I remember we talked about this with Nick Scarley because it was almost like this public weird pressure campaign for them to return the JobKeeper subsidies or stimulus that they received. You know, because given that they're a public company listed on the exchange, we can actually see those things, unlike a private company that would have received them. And they, I think I mentioned this in the episode, and maybe it hadn't happened yet, but uh, Nick Scarley did actually return that job job keeper subsidies, rather. And Dusk have done the same. Universal Store have done the same. Adairs, also listed on the ASX, have done the same. Then there's the ones that are not doing it, so Premier Investments which we've talked about before, they, but they collectively own brands like Peter Alexander, um, Smiggle. Um, Harvey Norman is another one. Sorry, Harvey Norman's not under Premier Investments, but separately Harvey Norman is also one that's not doing the handing back the JobKeeper thing. So it's kind of like this weird divide of companies choosing not to do it. I don't I don't really care, to be honest, really. I don't, but like, because a lot of, I'm, I'm sure a lot of it is PR in, in terms of looking good and and giving back that money if the business eventually didn't suffer as as they expected. But to me, it's always been the weird thing for me about the the way it's worked is it's been a little... because So like I said, we, we know these ones because they're public, but there are plenty of private companies that I'm sure if they were public companies, they would have got the same scrutiny or criticism about keeping the JobKeeper when their results and their financial performance actually did not suffer. But it's always been surprising to me that there was never this public log of where it was all going. Like public companies or private, doesn't matter, but just some kind of dashboard that showed where distributions went. I always thought that would have made sense, but anyway. Some more results. Um, Universal Store, for example, their net profit up 48%. So they did really well. And considering that's a that's a brand too that has, oh, I guess similar to Dusk in that they have those physical footprints through um, both shopping centers and CBD areas. A Booktopia, the so the book retailer, it actually it actually recorded a net loss, which actually had jumped from about half a million dollars up to almost twenty million dollars. And but they a lot of that's attributed to a big chunk of its one-off costs associated with their actual IPO listing that they did last year, and also a conversion of preference shares related to, the, again, to the listing. So, I don't, I, again, that seems one-off. But interesting enough, they this is, I guess, from a, just a purely book sale point of view, they said they shipped 4.2 million books across July to December, and that was up 32% on the year earlier period. And a big thing for them that's been a positive or they speak to a positive of their listing is just getting access to that capital because then they have invested in their operations. So they talked about investing $12 million in automation technology to help them actual, actually double what they can, like you know, what their actual capacity is to do each day. So they that, that helps them double their capacity to 60,000 units of, of shipping per day. So and that, that's a massive jump. So we'll stick to... Well, we'll move away from the ASX itself, but we'll stick to Australia for a little bit because obviously one of the other big things that happened during the week was the GDP numbers that came out for the quarter. And remember, this is not, it's like delayed slightly. We've talked about this. So the this was the December quarter. So running from October, November, December. So that quarter. Um, the So the headline figure was we had, or the, the country had 3.1% to, uh, in the quarterly growth. And so remember the and the quarter prior to that was three point four percent. So it was pretty close to what it's it did in the September quarter, so the prior quarter. And that all came off the back of the really, really bad quarter we had, which was the June quarter. And that was where our GDP fell seven percent quarterly. So the that was some good news for the government to report. So GDP up three point one percent for the quarter that's last ended. Now, if that's reflected, I guess, on an annual basis, it still does mean that annually GDP was down 1.1%. 
uh, running through some of the other stuff that the ABS released at the same time uh, in conjunction with the GDP figures or related to the GB- GDP figures. I guess one of the biggest stands out, standouts for that quarter, so October, November, December, was Victoria, which makes sense given their lockdown compared to basically the rest of us. So they, they had the biggest jump in t- for the qu- that quarterly period for household consumption. Now, through again, through the year, they're still down, but just for that quarterly period, they, they by far had the biggest jump in household consumption. After that, it was followed by Northern Territory, ACT, and then New South Wales. The other thing that's interesting is, you remember, we, we talked about how last year there's, well, there's this figure called the household savings ratio. So I guess it gives you an idea of how much households are tucking away into their savings. And that has more or less been on the slow, steady decline over the last decade. Yeah, basically. Um, and that probably coincides with how the housing market had performed, especially across, you know, 2015, 16, 17. Um, you know, people need deposits and money to put into uh, for a house. And last year, that, that household savings ratio ticked up quite significantly. So... The, I know around March it jumped up to about 7.9%, but then come June 2020, it jumped up to 20, 20, uh, 22%. So there's a few things there. There's, there's of course, the government intervening with job seeker and job keeper stimulus. So that would have helped. Also, just given the situation, there was less of an appetite to spend, of course, because there was a lot of uncertainty in the economy. And... Then there was also, I guess, less to spend on. You know, we we weren't we weren't really going on lots of holidays, and we weren't really forking out for crazy expenses like new cars and stuff like that. So that jumped up quite significantly. Now, since that time, that savings ratio has come down. It's still at elevated levels historically compared to the last decade, um, but it has come down to back to about twelve percent. I'd say that's probably going to continue to come down. I think that's relatively easy to say. But yeah, it's coming. It's starting to come down relatively sharply. The other thing I want to touch on because I didn't actually get to it back when we were doing like the those those two couple episodes where we focus purely on interim reporting season is where the employment or the unemployment is in Australia at the moment. So, and these figures were released by the ABS on the 18th of February. So they are a few weeks old. But at the moment, and this is as of uh, January 2021, uh, unemployment sits at 6.4%. And that has still continued to come down. Uh, Obviously spiked last year and then it started to come down again. And then it ticked up a little bit, which is more or less the Victorian lockdown effect to about 7%. And that was as high as it got again. And then it's basically been coming down more or less every month since that point and now sitting at 6.4% as we speak, although those figures will be updated pretty soon. Those uh, figures also that came out for the, um, as of January 2021 showed that unemployed people decreased by 34,300 to a total of 877,600 unemployed people. And, and that's an increase of about 156,000 over the year to January 2021. So it's still up on obviously where it was a year ago, but of course it's improved significantly from where we were six months ago. The participation rate is now up slightly than where it was right before the, the I guess everything happened in around March. I always say like around when COVID hit, and that kind of like broadly means March for us, but. Uh, it was sitting, participation rate was sitting at about 65.9%. And that's at, as of the last figure, 66.1%. So it's actually a little bit more than that. And remember, so the participation rate is looking at an economy's actual active workforce, right? Because when, because when we talk about, um, when we talk about unemployed people or the percentage of unemployed, if you've got a grandparent that's 85 years old and hasn't worked and is long retired, they're not counted in those figures because obviously they're not working and they're also not even looking for a job. 
So the participation rate is the number or the percentage of the actual economy of the people of a population that are actually in the workforce. So it's excluding, you know, six-month-old toddlers and 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 uh, people who are 90 years old, like the people who aren't working, of course. The other one I always look at is underemployment, which is people who are employed but would like to be working more than they are. So they, they might be a part-time worker who's seeking full-time work, for example. Um, before the, you know, around February 2020, that was at about 8.6%. Now it's about 8.1%. So that has come down quite significantly as well because that spiked up really bad. Also the underutilization rate, which is the mixture of unemployed and underemployed people. So that had spiked up significantly and has come back as well. So that's a little update on, I guess, where GDP is, I guess, where unemployment is. I think if you're, I guess, what what, what you'd be watching out for over the coming months is the roll-off of government support for JobKeeper. So that is ending. I think it ends in a matter of weeks, uh, actually in March. So JobKeeper, uh, the, the way JobSeeker works currently, and those, there's also these insolvent trading relief laws that, that came in over last year. That all comes to an end. Oh, I mean, unless they change it, but that, that doesn't look like it. But that all comes to an end in March. So I think, and I'm not the, I'm not doom and glooming that as in saying that it's all going to be hell once that finishes, but you might see some slight maybe blips in the data because of that. So there might be potentially the unemployment ticks up again slightly or at least remains steady or doesn't doesn't um isn't doesn't continue to decrease in the same the same rate it is at the moment so that's probably what i'm going to be looking for the 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 way that's going to impact you know both the broader economy so in those those future gdp figures and those consumption figures for, amongst households but also the unemployment rate and at the moment we don't know we, it's just a guessing game but it'll be interesting to see what that happens after after march Okay, so we'll talk about some some stuff in the states, so stuff across the pond in America. One of the things that the market, I feel like we always say this, but they're they're basically more more or less one of the things they've been following is a stimulus relief packages. And the last one that passed was a nine hundred billion dollar one, which was Trump's last one. This one that's proposed by uh, President Biden is a one point nine trillion dollar economic package. It's funny how they always like there's like this weird thing with spending money that government officials have where they they tend to do that thing where they cut it off slightly like they agree to what it's going to be before they've even voted on getting it across for example so 900 billion because i think it's just was the trump last one because it sounds better than saying 1 trillion because it's slightly less than that and this one's 1.9 trillion exactly as opposed to being in the twos Anyway, that's just a little observation I always make with these things. Like it always seems a bit stupid. But I remember one of the first episodes in this podcast back in the new year in 2021, I talked about the role that the whole $2,000 checks played in the Democrats and Biden gaining the fifty full 50 Senate seats and then technically and uh, a majority once you add in Kamala Harris being uh, 51 then. And how the Democrats in those Georgia runoff states, Georgia runoff seats rather, actually, or especially one of them I noted, was basically more or less running ads saying, you want $2,000 stimulus check, vote for us. And it appeared to have an impact and because they won those two seats. Now, as the months have gone on, that the way that stimulus package has changed is quite significant so there's been a couple of big things so the first was this talking around whether the u.s would introduce a minimum wage increase to 15 dollars an hour now it's important to note that that is a federal minimum wage so there are states across the u.s that do have minimum wages around that so the federal minimum wage in the u.s is seven dollars 25 that's at the federal level. So that's the federal guaranteed minimum wage. And so they one of the big calls was to double it to to well not sorry, that's not doubling it, but it's all just over double it up to $15 an hour. Now, like I was saying, that's important to know that's a federal minimum wage. There are states already, for example, like California is uh, 
Uh, I know Washington's closer to around $15. Some states are, are $7.25, like Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, they are all $7.25. So that's not to say all of them are more than that. Um, Texas, $7.25. Virginia, $7.25. And then you'll have, yeah, again, like some of the states that well, definitely a state with a higher living cost of living or average cost of living like New York. Um, that's closer to $12, the minimum wage. So yeah, one of the big things that they were looking at putting in the package was this increase to the minimum wage. That's definitely, that seems more or less fallen off the package because Biden more or less sig- signaled that he doesn't think it's going to get through. And one of the things they quote as saying that the reason it's not going to get through is because the Senate parliamentarian, which is this person that this person deems that this whether this should be part of the broader bill because this bill is done under this rules in the Senate called reconciliation. A reconciliation bill in the US in US Congress is you can, you're only allowed a, a few a year. Uh, so not many of them happen. They have to be very much focused on a budgetary so they have to be p- based on spending revenue and federal debt limit uh, that's all factored into the bill. And for example, the last one that was a reconciliation bill, I'm pretty sure this is the last one was when Trump um, did the corporate tax cuts going back a few couple of years ago. This is this Biden $1.9 trillion economic relief bill is a reconciliation bill. So, and what that means is you only need just a simple majority in the Senate to pass it. And when I say simple, you just need just a majority, i.e. 51 votes. Whereas normally to pass like a non-reconciliation bill, you need um, 60 votes, which given how um, partisan everything is in the US, they wouldn't get 60 because they've only got, they've really only got about 50-ish guaranteed sort of. Then they'd have to find, you know, what, like 10 Republicans to vote on something with them, um, which is unlikely. Now, going back to that parliamentarian, the parliamentarian is a role in the in the Senate and this she uh, ruled that the idea of putting the minimum wage in this bill, the increase to $15, was wouldn't be considered a budgetary thing and couldn't be passed as reconciliation because the $15 mandate itself isn't about spending and the budget. You know, it's, a, it's about increasing the minimum wage. So if you take that on its own, it, it makes sense. But the reason it's silly is... So, so there's this narrative that comes out after this where people are saying, oh, well, they tried to do it, but it looks like they can't. And so they're just going to have to take it out. But the parliamentarian, just it, it, they just provide advice, right? So what can happen is let's say you're a president and you're putting a bill up for reconciliation and they say, a parliamentarian says, oh, we don't think that part of it should is, is budgetary in nature. The vice, the sitting vice president, in this case, Joe Biden's vice president, Kamala Harris, can actually just overrule them and say, oh, well, I don't agree with you. You're wrong. It is. And then it just becomes part of it. And then if the vice president does that, the Senate needs 60 votes to overrule the vice president then, which is would be extremely unlikely as well because the Republicans have 50 but they then need to grab 10 Democrats to also overrule the the call by Kamala Harris to just make it so, to make it part of the bill. So I don't think they could do that. So then it would be in the bill. And then even if you do have a... There's, there's a so the part of the problem with all this is that you've got a couple Democratic senators. Joe Manchin's the one that's often noted there. But Kristen Sinema is another one who are like iffy on voting for this thing altogether or they're, they're trying to make changes. But then you put them in, a, you pressure them into a situation where say, say they vocally don't like the idea of raising it to $15, but now that it's in there as part of the broader giant $1.9 trillion bill, you're putting them in a situation where do you want to tank this whole thing based on this one aspect of it? So to me, that seems like the avenue to go down if I'm, President Biden, for example, but they did not do that. So it looks like it's going to be removed. And if it is removed and if it's on its own, like if the idea of them being able to push this as its own bill later on in and across the Senate and they need 60 votes is inconceivable to me. I just don't think it, would, it will happen. 
the other thing that I talked about the um, Senate race in Georgia and how they they pushed on those two thousand dollar checks. Well, the thing that they've done since then is because the Trump bill, his last one that they that he put into place, he included six hundred dollar checks in it. And this is just frustrating to me. But what Biden's team have done and the Democrats have done is say, oh well, yeah, we did promise two thousand dollar checks, but because Trump then got that six hundred dollar one across the line and he paid you guys six hundred, we're gonna make ours fourteen hundred. So then it is two thousand overall, but we'll bring ours down to fourteen hundred. And I'm just like, oh just so whether or not you agree with that from like a fiscal or economic perspective, just put that aside. The idea of how dumb that is politically to run on this thing of like a pretty clear message and then just change it, it's just so dumb that they did that. And I think it's going to impact them um, in their midterms, so coming up in a couple of years. But I'm starting to get a little bit out of sort of economic and um, market-related stuff there. But that's another thing that's changed, I guess, in terms of affecting the the amount of money and stimulus checks that people will receive in the states. The other thing that they're doing is they're changing the, they're doing the the means testing, which it was always means tested, in terms of it was based on how much you weren't. So obviously, like someone who weren't, say 150k, wouldn't have got a check. But they've brought down the means testing even more. So you've got to be earning. I think now it's gotten to a point which is earning under fifty thousand dollars which is actually worse than what Trump's mean test was, which his was only under $75,000. So again, bringing in all these little extra rules after the fact, I think is silly, just purely from a political point of view, but that's kind of where the stimulus bill is. And I guess the market's been watching this too because the US is still... I mean, so hospitalizations and COVID cases are have come down significantly of where they were. And the economy is entering a recovery period now but it's not great like it's still really tough out there for for many people and and i think that's definitely one of the things that the market's watching is you know how how is this going to what's this going to look like once it crosses the line what's that what's that bill actually going to look like um once it once it gets passed but it's something to watch at the moment it's ongoing at the moment so we'll still be we'll still be watching it i guess live um, but that's something to see how the market reacts when that eventually does get passed. Like if the bill will get passed, I'm not I'm definitely confident on that happening, um, but it's just what it looks like on the other end in terms of those benefits for people who are jobless, those stimulus checks, and whether or not uh, a raise in the minimum wage is there. That last one, almost certainly no, um, but, that, but that's where it's at at the moment. So let's talk about some of the, I guess the volatility we've seen in markets in the last couple of weeks. Most prominently in the technology sector. So if you're someone that holds a portfolio that has a fair bit of tech in it, whether that's NASDAQ or, or ASX-related tech, you probably would have seen some decent red days over the past fortnight. I know I have. That's someone who was doing like a portfolio uh, analysis of my shares would say that I'm overweight tech, but uh, that's where I am at the moment. And a large part of this downturn can be attributed to this little issue with bond yields or or at the very least this narrative around rising bond yields and like I said it's an issue if you've got some of those high flying uh, generally tend to be high valuation tech stocks like you find on the Nasdaq and some of our local Aussie tech sector like the buy now pay laters like uh, uh, Zero, like the accounting software some of the SaaS companies on the ASX like the software as a service companies uh, but this issue with bond yields has been, it's kind of been bubbling for a little bit over the past six months, but it's really kicked off in the start of the new year, um, which is what is these rising yields on what's called the US 10-year treasury bond. Now, when there's rising yields in bonds, that can be problematic for stocks. And there arguably is not a bond or a particular type of bond more important in the world than that US 10-year treasury bond. In terms of its just sheer, I guess, popularity for in, among investors, but also the way it's used in the calculation of stock valuations by professional investment funds and analysts. So one event that occurred is that the yield on the 10-year treasury, 
bond, which has been climbing for a little bit now. It actually climbed up high enough. This is about two weeks ago. It, it climbed up high enough that it was actually surpassed the uh, average, the dividend yield of the S&P 500 index. So let's break that down a bit. So the other week, the yield on US 10-year bonds became slightly better than that of the primary US benchmark, the the S&P 500, so the dividend yield you'd get for investing in the S&P 500. So if you have, let's say, you've all your investments, they're in the S&P 500, that means that at that exact point, technically speaking, you would be yielding less and so receiving less income annually than if you just put it in the US 10-year treasury bond. Now, specifically, I saw this graph on Twitter and I'm pretty sure it was a Bloomberg chart but I can't remember, which is terrible because I, I always like to give credit to the stuff I talk about. But let's just say it's Bloomberg. But this graph had this, this one blue line representing the 10-year US bond yields and then an orange line being the dividend yield on the S&P 500 index. And this blue line, so the treasury yields has been climbing slowly and slowly. The orange line has fallen slowly since 2019 and they, they basically the other way just crossed paths and that 10-year climbed up a tad above 1.5%, the S&P 500 at about 1.48%. And as a bit of a basic, let's do a quick refresher on government bonds. So the, the easiest way to think of bonds, they're not super complex, but it's let's just say they're like an IOU coupon. So you hand over your $10,000 to the US government in this case for a US government tre- or a treasury bond. In this case, it's a 10-year bond. And what that means is the US will, the, the Treasury Department will say, thank you very much. I will give you back that principal that you've invested in 10 years. So they'll give you back your original. And over the meantime, I'm going to pay an interest rate, a fixed interest rate on that 10-year bond. So in that case, say 1.5% over, over the 10-year period. And so if you put $10,000 in, which we did in this example, then at the end of the 10 years, you get your $10,000 back. So maybe you're asking, okay, so is there a causal relationship with all this? Like why does the 10-year, specifically the 10-year government bond yield impact the stock market and why the significance of it climbing now slightly above the yield of that S&P 500 index? And there's probably two key reasons to discuss here. The first is easy as it pertains to just basic investment risk. But the second, a little bit trickier, it's kind of about the way stocks are valued so let's start with the first one about investment risk. This is an easy one to get your head around. Like put simply, if you're an investor and let's say you come up to me with your $10,000 and you're staring at two options in, in front of you and I'm, I'm presenting you those two options. One is to invest in the stock market, um, the S&P 500 in the US in this case. And that market, well, any stock market, any equity market, it can be volatile. And also the yield is never guaranteed, right? So that, that yield that you're receiving through dividends is not mandatory by any means. So company, well, it could go up, it also could go down. So companies don't have to pay a dividend. They can cut them, they can raise them, they can keep them the same. So I offer you that investment. Um, and at the moment, it's giving you about 1.48% in return. On the other hand, I can give you a 10-year treasury bond, which actually yields a little bit more than the S&P 500. And not only that, it's, it's issued by the US government. So it's backed by the US government, which means it's exceptionally safe and kind of with this ironclad guarantee from them to return your money at the end of the 10 years and pay that yield along the way. In that scenario, it kind of starts to look like perhaps bonds are a pretty good option. They're a lot of they're a lot safer in that regard. The risk with the bond lies in if you think there is a chance that the US government defaults, which it is almost certainly will not. I don't think it definitely will, but <laughs> I guess you can never say definitely, but it almost certainly will not. And comparatively, if you pick the S&P 500 yield or the S&P 500 index to invest in and, and take that yield, sure, it might go up. It might stay the same. It might get worse. It might be a little bit of a roller coaster because generally stocks are a little bit more volatile and there might be a crash this year or next year or five years from now, who knows? But across that 10-year period, um, anything can happen. So considering this example, this is one reason why you might see equity markets sell off because they just generally might be those that want to seek to invest in the risk-free yield of a 10-year government bond as opposed to the risk-heightened stock market. Or they might um, take, say, say if they've got like $100,000 invested 
in total or a million dollars invested um, in total, they might start to rotate some of that out of equity markets and put it into some of those bonds if they're going to now be getting a little bit better of a yield on it than they used to be. And they might take it specifically out of some of those, I guess, the riskier ones or the ones that did exceptionally well over the last 12 months that they've made decent returns on, so which tend to be those technology stocks, and just put it in, I guess, more of a safe haven, which is that US government IOU. Now, it's important to re- remember on this point that the reverse is true as well. And this is something that's clearly been demonstrated over the past few years where central banks across the globe cutting rates so before COVID and, and everything, they'd still been on a downward trend in terms of cutting rates. That We've also seen the yield on government bonds in countries like the US and Australia fall. And that in turn puts upward pressure on equity markets because people investing in any kind of fixed interest, whether it's cash in the bank, whether it's government bonds, whether it's a term deposit, they are starting to look around, or they have been over the past few years, to look around and say, well, I want to make something out of my money and I'm not going to get it with fixed interest. And, you know, because it's record low, almost zero return, bonds aren't yielding that much. So it doesn't give me much options. So hence, you, you, you've had that upward momentum on equity markets for people chasing returns. But another reason as to why the stock market suffers, and like I said just before, particularly those high-flying market favorite stocks, often technology-focused or even just partially the ones that we often tend to talk about and make the news, the headlines, they suffer very hard and it's because stock price valuations from an academic sense are partly based on the yield that's currently being returned on a treasury bond like the US 10-year. So think of it this way. Remember when we spoke about the treasury bond being very safe and it is, it's exceptionally safe and if the return on that extremely safe investment starts to rise... And on the other hand, you're offering me shares in, say, Apple. I'm going to demand a higher return on those shares because that's always going to be a much riskier asset to own than a bond. So when analysts, and I'm talking about professional analysts, investment funds, when they calculate the valuation of a stock, and you would have seen this if you have your own broking platform, it's likely that you've seen research like this before where they go through their thesis on a particular company, say like West Farmers, and then they say, and we've got a target price of $51. Just made that up. But, And I'm not going to go into too much of the weeds here because I don't think it's necessary to understand. But one of the most common valuation models looks at the discounted cash flow of a company or an investment. And this is a valuation method that actually looks to value an investment based on so future cash flows. But it has to bring those future cash flows back to the present value. And to calculate those future cash flows but at a present value, part of that calculation is using what's called the risk-free rate, which is effectively heavily tied to the yield on a US 10-year treasury bond. In that, if that bond yield starts to rise, that formula we just spoke about, about the way they calculate their valuation on a stock, that changes automatically on their spreadsheet And what is demanded of the stocks from a valuation perspective becomes a bit tougher. So as those bond rates start to rise, you can see their target price start to pull down on those stocks Uh, because with those rising bond yields, you're getting an increase in what's called the risk-free rate. And this can be really, again, at at like an investment fund level, analyst level, this can be quite damaging to stocks that are on a very high valuation. So if I think about it in the Australian market, you think of an afterpay or in pretty much the buy now, pay later sector uh, completely. Uh, If you look at the US, you're thinking of stocks like Tesla. You might be thinking of ones that rocketed last year like Zoom, the video conferencing platform. So as the valuation metric changes, especially the ones that that are really, really high evaluated, it can cause a bit of a correction in those high flyers as it starts to actually bring the price down based on those new valuation that these analysts come out with. But another question to ask, I think, about all this, at least something that I've been thinking about is why are bond rates going up? And one of those reasons is because investors are anticipating inflation. And I think that's an important thing to clarify there. It doesn't guarantee inflation. It's 
a sign that there's an anticipation of inflation, that perhaps inflation might be returning because it's been more or less not a thing for ages. Okay, so why would investors think that inflation's coming back? So think about the last year, absolute shit of a year, <laughs> more than a year now. When I say shit of a year, I mean the global economy that is, especially, well, let's keep the example in the US, right? Over half a million dead from the virus, huge economic damages, uh, tens of millions unemployed. But now we're transitioning into a period of recovery. And to top that, over the past year, there have also been measures by central banks and governments to support the economy, be that through direct payments to individuals, be that to payments and loan support for businesses. The economies, are, especially here in Australia, as we sort of talked about with the GDP, but also in the US, they are starting to get back up on their feet. And this narrative has picked up more steam that as the economic recovery and reopening is fueled by better prospects in the employment market, there are vaccines rolling out, so more and more people becoming vaccinated. You're going to see, I mean, broadly speaking, but especially in those industries that got smashed last year. So thinking of like the service industry, thinking of the travel industry, and that demand pressure is going to cause inflation, perhaps. Now, I'm not saying that everyone thinks this way. Part of the thing that happens with these, and I, I, keep, I kept using the word narrative, is because with those rising bond yields, we've seen the media's picked up on it. So they're constantly talking about it. And the word inflation's being thrown around a lot more in the last few weeks than it has in ages. And it's important to point out that, again, this doesn't mean that the bond yields are right in that the inflation is definitely coming back at, at where they think it's going to come back. They might be right in the fact that it comes up, so inflation does rise, but it might it might only go to like 2%, which is not much. And if anything, that's kind of probably, especially our central bank would like it to get somewhere between 2 to 3%. But it's important to note that there have been times over the last decade or so where you see the bond yield start to tick up with inflation expectations, but then it simmers and settles back down because that didn't occur. In fact, there's been multiple times over the past 10 years where that has happened. So I think that's important to note as well. So it's it's not an ironclad prediction that this is 100% going to happen. At the end of the day, bond investors are anticipating that, or some of them are anticipating that this might happen. And you're seeing that pressure up on bond yields, which if they're right too, is kind of them saying, well, even though there's been, again, a narrative from central banks, so we think about our central bank, so the, the Reserve Bank of Australia, they're saying that based on their current models, they would say inflation would have to be in between that 2 to 3% target band for them to start looking and, and, and be sustained inflation. Like it can't just spike up to say 2.2% and then just drop again. Like it has to be sustained inflation for them to start toggling the interest rates and, and based on their calculations, they don't think it's uh, likely to happen until at least 2024. Because I think some, some of the messaging I've heard is that more or less that people are taking it as, oh, the, government, the Reserve Bank of Australia's governor has locked in that rates won't change. And they're not saying that they're definitely not going to change, but I guess based on their forecast, they don't see it changing until 2024. But note that that might change as well. So yeah, going back to the the bond yields, the fact that they're rising too is kind of them, those investors and the bond yields are kind of signaling that they don't believe that central banks will leave rates as they are for several years because if there is an inflation tick up like that, they they being the, the central banks might have to move a lot quicker than they might move this year or next year based on rates depending on how inflation goes. So that's kind of what's been happening with bond yields probably the key things to remember is they're an alternative asset class so if they are starting to rise then you'll then that can just generally be bad for the equity markets because it's a it becomes starts to become a little bit more of a better option but remember historically especially in the last 10 years 
they have been not a great investment in terms of the returns versus the equity market. So we've, we've had a great run of stocks being a much better investment than bonds for a very long time. And the other thing about them is that they are used to calculate stock valuations. And that can be, like I said, you, you'll see like you'll never see like something safe like the banks in Australia move in the same way that an afterpay moves. But that's because afterpay uh, is not profitable, but its its earnings are pushed out into the future by quite a long by a long bit. So its valuations are based on uh, current ten year Treasury bond yields, or it's that's factored into their valuations. So I guess those two things in their impact on equity markets. That's why there's this talk of bond yields causing some jitters on the stock market, and it has. Like I said, if you're someone that holds especially some technology stocks like I do, like, like for example, I said at the top of the show, I'm a holder in Zip, so that's one of the buy now, pay laters. That's definitely happened <laughs> over the past week or so. Again, like I take, a, I take a longer term view than just over the next year or few months or whatever. So it doesn't bother me, but it might bother other people. For me, what I think about when I think about inflation, I actually take this as a grain of salt because I don't know what I'm talking about half the time, but... I don't see inflation coming back in a meaningful way over the next couple of years at all. There's too much slack in the employment market right now, in my opinion, for there to be any kind of meaningful inflation. It's tough to see any changes to wage growth in Australia because that's been something stagnant for quite a while. I personally am not convinced of the whole inflation case at all. Um, but that's my opinion <laughs> and I don't know maybe I bookmark that and we'll see where we are in a couple of years time and if I'm wrong then I won't ever apply for governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia and you can take that to the bank okay that is it that is episode 48 of the Market Pulse podcast the coming back edition thank you so much for tuning in like I said at the top of the show especially being a new year throwing a star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from definitely helps us. Tell your friends about it. Tell your family. Tell your mum. And thank you for those that um, continue to tune in every episode to support the show. I very much appreciate it. But anyway, my name is Dion Gribben. You have been listening to the Market Pulse podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Cheers. Cheers.